There isn't zero risk. Prices don't go up forever. Rents don't go up forever. The economy isn't perfect forever. Diversification isn't just good investing wisdom. It's essential to survival, at least according to Jeremy Roll. Jeremy's been investing in real estate for over two decades. He's the founder and president of Roll Investment Group, where he manages a group of over 1,500 investors. So what secrets have helped Jeremy go from working in the corporate world before 2007 to being invested in more than 60 opportunities across more than $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets? Today, with what we're dealing with economically, I'm not really investing in anything normal. I do things in the reverse order of what you're being pitched typically as an investor. Keep listening to find out. So I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor since 2007, but I've been doing it since 2002, so over 20 years. You have experience investing in many different asset classes. You touched on that, and we will get into that. Uh, I believe your investment journey began in the stock market, like a lot of people, but in the past, I've heard you reference how you weren't extremely happy with the results from those investments in the stocks. A, I wanted to touch on what volatility or unpredictability were you seeing in the stock market? And then you also mentioned that you're a big cash flow fan. Um, so can you expand on maybe how that led you to pursuing different asset classes to invest in? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll also answer part of your previous question, which is I started investing in stocks and bonds in early um, when I was like, probably in my early 20s. And that happened as a result of me having a corporate job and being able to put some of my money into more retirement account type program. And um, so what happened with me is that um, I, so I have an MBA from the Wharton School. I kind of did the typical like, you know, ladder climbing and got to the middle level um, management type situation. And this was over 10 years of corporate experience. But what happened to me is that Back in 2001 and two, I saw the dot-com crash happen, for those of you who are old enough to remember that even. And I was really sick and tired of the stock market for my retirement account. And the reason why is because I'm a very low-risk guy. The Watching the volatility is not the right fit for me to watch the market go up and down 30% a year, wrong fit for me. And the lack of predictability of where my retirement account would be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years as a result of the volatility really bothered me. So I started to look at different ways to invest. And what I concluded for myself is I'm looking for more predictable returns. And I thought that alternative cash flow uh, with a predictability focus, which I mean being like a stabilized type of opportunity that already exists, where you might be going into a 90, 100% occupied building, stabilized building, um, where because of the diversification of tenant base and the history, you can look at that and say, okay, the day after I invest, it's probably going to be a similar occupancy rate. The cash flow is probably going to be similar, right? Assuming it's managed well. So I started to rotate my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow starting in early 2002 in real estate. And then I eventually rotated all my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow. And my goal at that point was not to get out of the corporate world. It was actually to have the corporate world paycheck, but also a more predictable retirement account. That's really what my goal was. And then I had a last draw moment with the manager of mine. I was actually working. My last job was at Toyota headquarters in Los Angeles. Um, and I had a last draw moment with my manager and decided to leave because I had enough cash flow built up to live off of. But again, it wasn't my plan. Like a lot of people actually have a really good plan to get out of the corporate world. It wasn't my plan. It's just what I ended up doing. Um, and so that's how I ended up down the cash flow stream. And that's why I kind of is, ended up being a good fit for me. Yeah, that's such a power move. I mean, and I'm sure a lot of people, that's a fantasy of theirs, just to be able to have the freedom to leave their corporate job if they want. Yeah. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, I talk to a lot of people um, all the time who are have like a five or 10 year plan to get out of the corporate world because, you know, it, it's it's not a get rich quick overnight scheme. It's, it's you have to have a 
like everything else in life, it takes work, it takes um, consistency, and you have to have a plan. But if you do take that approach, I see a lot of people successfully getting out typically over a five or 10 year period, more commonly 10, it takes a long time to build up the, you know, the investment investments and the cash flow. And there's one of the things I, I, I mean, there's almost nothing I like better than watching someone do that successfully and get that freedom. Because, you know, I'm so accustomed to being out of the corporate world at this point, it's been like, what is it, 15, 16 years that, uh, you know, I take it for granted. But then when I think back, I mean, it's almost unbelievable to me to think about the difference, right? Because when we're done with this podcast, I decide how the rest of my day goes. Um, if I want to take off a day, I don't call anybody and ask them for permission or hope that I have a sick day or a vacation day. It's all back in my court. Now there's pros and cons. I don't have a steady paycheck. I have to, you know, figure that out myself. Um, but if you follow a very long-term plan, I see a lot of people doing that very successfully. Yeah, there seems to be two schools of thought when it comes to leaving your job or reaching that financial freedom. And I'm thinking some people will say live below your means until you're able to generate enough income from your investments where you can leave. And then maybe other people who they have a high earning job where they generate a lot of income from that job. And so as a result, it's going to take a lot longer. So maybe it makes more sense for them to just try to make as much money as they can from their active income in order to dump that into investments. Uh, just briefly, can you touch on maybe what, what advice do you give people typically, or, and this isn't financial advice, but what, I guess, perspective do you maybe resonate with more? Yeah, and that's a very important point. I'm not a financial advisor or investment advisor. This is all my perspective as an investor, no financial advice. So um, I think a combination of both is actually optimal, right? So if you can actually live well below in your means and have the highest income possible, you're going to get to the finish line in that type of goal as quickly as possible. Um, I've heard of stories of people having very extreme situations where they'll go like, you know, when they're young, they go live at home eat ramen or maybe not even pay for food at home, never go out, you know, and everyone's got to do their own thing that they think is best for them. Um, I'm personally not a big believer that, you know, living in any extreme is, you know, is the best idea. I think it's some type of balance, but maybe uh, leaning towards getting to the goal line sooner rather than later is optimal in this type of situation. Um, but it's a very subjective topic. Um, it's very hard for people to say, okay, just wake up one day and say, oh, I want to get out of the corporate world. I just need to make more money. Like, where do you start from there, right? It's complicated. It's not easy. So the thing that people have more control over more quickly, I think, is you can pull out your credit card bill anytime tonight and start to slash costs, right? Now, you may not like what you're slashing in some cases, but I think almost everybody can do it in that no one's right down to the bone, right? There is some fat there in everybody's credit card statement. So you could take proactive steps to start to get there quickly combined with how do I increase my income over time in a reasonable way to make this even happen quicker. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. I'm not sure that there's a perfect one, uh, but I do think the extreme approaches can be very challenging on someone who may be giving up uh, social um, aspects who may, you know, I am all about, by the way, um, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the term, but the concept of, you know, giving, sacrificing today for tomorrow. Delayed um, gratification. Delayed gratification. Thank you. All about that. That's how I've lived. Um, and then you just have to make sure you're not doing it to such an extreme that it's kind of ended up, you know, shooting yourself in the foot in the long term. So, so you started investing in the stock market. I wanted to fast forward to today and Maybe just can you provide some context as to what asset classes you're currently invested in? Sure. So my approach, um, and again, I don't. I think there's a thousand ways to invest. None of them are wrong. But my approach has always been to get as diversified as possible. And what I tell people is that I'm a passive investor, and I define that as being someone who gives up control. That's my own definition. I don't think there's an official definition. 
But the problem is that when I give a control up to somebody else who's managing something, I increase risk. And what I mean by that is that I have more risk because there could be fraud, mismanagement, Ponzi scheme, all kinds of stuff that I have no control over. And I call them all 1% risks, but you can never eliminate them, right? And so in order to reduce those risks, I think diversification definitely helps. And so when I look to get diversified, I try to get diversified across asset classes, geographies, and operators, okay? And so I'm currently in over 60 different LLCs actively just to give you an idea. And I think that's extreme, but that's just because I do it full time. I've been doing it for so long, it adds up over time. Um, I've been in over 150 to 200 opportunities total in the past 20 plus years. And, um, you know, for someone like me who's looking for more predictable cash flow, the concept of being diversified is just a lot of peace of mind. It's a lot of work to do it. And especially if you're not doing it full time to be able to get that diversified is very challenging. But once you have the ability, if you're full time, it's, it's obviously easier. But I think that it's important to, you know, I feel like if I trade control for diversification and I'm not getting properly diversified, now all of a sudden I'm increasing my risk and it's a little bit counterproductive, right? So that's a thing I'm very heavily focused on. And to just give you a quick list of what I'm investing, because I'm investing in almost in almost everything except for hotels, honestly. So it includes mobile home park, self-storage, RV park, senior housing, um, apartments, student housing apartments, office, retail, industrial, um, not in hotels, as I mentioned. Uh, I'm normally in some aspect of single family investing, but on the sidelines on it right now. So that could include lending money to people flipping homes, buying and holding rentals um, or flipping homes also. And then I'm in a lot of non-real estate stuff as well. Uh, you know, I'm in some cash flowing ATM machines I've been in since 2008. Um, and it the real common thread is that I'm just looking for more predictable, lower risk cash flow because that just suits my personality and my goals. I have 1% of my portfolio in, um, you know, 1% may not be exactly it, but, you know, very small percentage in startups, but I'm only a handful of maybe 10 or 12 startups. And that's something I'm looking for. Those are very unique situations where I have to make a bet on somebody. And I like the idea well enough. Uh, but 99% of my focus is on this cash flow. And I try to get as diversified as possible within the cash flow. Yeah, I find it fascinating that you're invested in so many different asset classes. I know uh, there's this quote, I'm going to butcher it, but Andrew Carnegie said, at the beginning of your investment journey, you should focus on put all your eggs in one basket and watch it like, like a hawk. Um, and so I think there are these two schools of thought there where some people say focus on one versus you're kind of a proponent of maybe diversifying early on. Can you expand on, on your philosophy behind that and how it actually helps you mitigate risk um, from, from where you're standing? Yeah, and I just want to address that for a second, because I think that anyone who's brand new, my um, opinion is that they should start with one asset class. And because if you learn an asset class really well, then you could probably translate 80% of everything you've learned into any asset class, and you have to make some tweaks. And so um, I'm a very big fan of people starting on one and starting with the one that they actually understand the best, and maybe they can relate to the most, which often is someone's lived in apartments. Like if you grew up in a mobile home park, that might be the best one for you to start with because your learning curve is going to be much lower. You're going to know what to look out for in terms of risk, and you might be much more successful to start. So I think it's very personal, but I, I think it's important to focus on one. Now, also, I want to distinguish between uh, Carnegie's um, you know, suggestion, because if you look at the most successful successful in terms of financial net worth, people in the world, they typically focus on one thing. Um, but that's active. That's an active focus. They're actively involved. They have control. On the passive side, I would argue that um, technically you take more risk if you're actually focused on one thing. So you may end up with a better return than somebody else, but you're taking on more risk. And that's something I try to avoid. So it's something to consider active versus passive, maybe different approaches, right? Not every asset class is for everybody. And when I say, for example, I'm in office and retail, I think one of the most important things to understand is that 
there's a lack of liquidity when I invest. I can't just go sell like a stock today and just go into my fidelity, press sell and get the cash in two or three days. I have to think way ahead. And, and that in this type of investing, it's very hard to sell your shares. Um, it's illegal to sell your shares. I think within the first year, I think it's illegal to flip them. I'm not 100% sure. But and then if you want to sell them, it's hard to find a buyer. You may need to take a discount. So you have to assess in terms of what I invest in is typically a five or 10 year timeline. Not only do you have to assess if you think it's a good deal today, but you have to assess um, all kinds of trends in the economy, um, people's preferences or what they're buying and what they're looking for and think five or 10 years ahead is what makes sense. So for example, I stopped investing in retail and office probably about 2015 because I saw more and more stuff both going virtual at the time, nothing to do with the pandemic. And also that's the office side. On the retail side, more and more stuff's going online. And so the predictability of demand was getting cloudier in those asset classes for someone like me. But that's because I had to think so far ahead. I can't take those risks, right? So I want to be clear, even though I'm in a lot of asset classes, I wouldn't necessarily choose those asset classes today. And also specifically today with what we're dealing with economically, I'm not really investing in anything normal. It has to be very unique or I'm on the sidelines, right? So um, it's important to think well ahead to avoid the landmines because you're locked into a deal for five or 10 years. You have to think five or 10 years ahead, which I think is not so easy for people to do, especially if they're not focused on this full time. Yeah, you said that not every asset class is for everyone and people tend to invest in what they know. Whether they know or not, or they're educated or not on a particular asset class, I'm sure that you believe education is essential no matter what. And in the past, I've heard you refer to ex uh, opportunity exposure and how that can help people educate uh, themselves when it comes to investing. Can you expand on how anyone should approach opportunity exposure and what that looks like? So when I first started, it was a different time. There was barely the internet. There was no um, smartphones. Um, opportunities weren't allowed to be publicly marketed. Crowdfunding didn't, didn't exist. It was much harder to find opportunities. And there was also very little educational content within reason. There was a few like, you know, infomercials on TV about buying homes and all this, but it wasn't in this type of investing. So what I decided to do was I call it opportunity exposure. I try to find as many opportunities as possible. So let's say you want to start with apartments. You're like, okay, I want to start with apartments that were built between 1980 and 19, 2000 and a class B type thing in certain locations. You try and find as many opportunities as possible, lay them all next to each other. And the way to learn is to look at the differences, right? So what, like across these 10 deals, if eight of them have a certain preferred return and split structure with investors, why are the other two different? And what is that telling you, right? If seven of them have one type of business plan and three have another, which do you think is better? Um, which is a better fit for you? Um, and you start to learn all these different things. But the opportunity exposure, and by the way, another great example is like an expense ratio. If if nine of them end up or eight of them end up in a certain range of 45 to 50%, but then there's one at 60% or one at 30%, what does that tell you? Uh, is that Does that mean that those um, assumptions were overly aggressive or overly conservative? What is the normal range? What's an average range? So by looking at enough things, you can start to look at the averages and understand what type of preferred return you're going to get today or what you should be getting, what splits you should be getting, what do the fees look like and, you know, which fees are too high, which fees are unusually low. And so to me, that's a really good way to learn. And one thing I want to add is that in this day and age, if you're an accredited investor, you can log on in your pajamas tonight to a bunch of crowdfunding websites, download 20 apartment deals right um you know very easily and have them all in front of you at once within hours very efficiently like in hours forget hours like less than an hour very efficiently i could not do that that would take me weeks or months to actually accomplish when i first started so there's a lot of efficiencies for investors to be able to get the opportunity exposure right now to begin their learning um and that, that's what that means yeah i appreciate you breaking that down and you keep referring to this almost a 
for lack of a better phrase, this trade-off that you're doing between control and diversification. Um, and I just wanted to know, I think you've, you've made, might have already touched on it, but can you expand on why you think, and I think I already know the answer maybe, why is control, sorry, why is diversification to you more important than control? That's a great question. So this is a personality fit. So when I first started investing, I was working at Disney headquarters in Burbank. I was crazy busy managing a ton of stuff, um, just juggling so many things. So to me, by default, I didn't have the time to actually actively buy things, even if I wanted to. I didn't think I was going to be able to do it and have enough time to do it really effectively. So I was defaulted immediately to the passive path. And when I went down the passive path and started going down, the more I went down it, the more I liked it. And the more I realized it was a right, right personality fit for me. Right. So to me, the active versus passive is, a, is an important personality fit. There are business owners I talked to who are very successful, built a business for 10, 20 years. And now they want to start to like take some of that cash flow. They may even sell their business to decide how do they want to, you know, then invest all the money. And the first thing I tell them is that, like, look, you can rotate all this into passive. You've been an active business owner for years, but is that the right personality fit for you? Do you actually like having control? Is the having control the better fit for you? Because for some people it is, right? Um, and they have to make that decision. If you're the type of person who wants to invest in anything or wants to be able to drive an hour or two to see whatever they're investing in, which some people like to, then that's really not uh, really realistic to be able to achieve on the passive side. That would be active, right? As an example. Um, so you have to really think about what is the best fit for you. I could tell you that I love being passive. I wouldn't know how to begin you know, managing a mobile home park, but I love being invested in them. And I love making bets on good people who do that. And I love splitting the profits, to be honest with you. I think they do a lot of great work. And I'm basically making bets on a lot of people, right? And so um, I just enjoy being passive and all that. And I do my work up front to analyze an opportunity. And then it's up to the person to do all the work and execute on it after that. So just the right fit for me. It totally the wrong fit for some people, just to be clear. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I'm, I'm a big fan of bringing people on that have maybe, I don't want to say contrarian perspectives, but you have a different perspective on the risk level that a passive investor takes. A lot of people I've heard say the active investor has more risk because they're setting on the loan. And you've actually said that, uh, that the passive investor has a lot more risk than I guess people initially realize. Can you expand on why you think that is? I know you've touched on it, but. There's all kinds of different risks. So some of the stuff coming to mind is uh, as a passive investor, you're giving control to somebody else. You may or may not have any voting rights, depending on the operating agreement, what the rules are in that opportunity, which, you know, you have to pay attention to closely before you make a decision as to whether that's even the right fit for you. Um, you're at the whim of someone uh, who may or may not choose to sell a property at a certain time. I mean, I have a you know story of property that I had been trying to push the sponsor to sell in 2018 and 19. Um, they're like, no, no, just one more year. We want to just get it optimized. And of course, we had the pandemic. That property has now had a challenge. And it's fine. It's cash flowing. But we would have been better off exiting at that time. If I owned that myself, it would have been done a long time ago, right? Um, and so um, there's definitely inherently, in my opinion, even more risk than if you at least have active management over something so that you can choose to refinance a property, hire and fire a property manager, um, decide how much money you want to spend on your expenses, um, decide when to sell a property or not to sell a property. There's a lot of advantages to being active, but of course, like everything else in life, there's pros and cons. So I think you'd have to look at the type of risk to really assess which is more risky because there's different risks that are involved in either of them. So, um, but I think it's important to understand that there are a lot of risks as a passive investor, just like there are a lot of risks as an active investor. Absolutely. That's something that I think a lot of people just don't talk about the, the different kinds of risks because there's not just one type. And another risk, 
I just, I think that a lot of past investors who are new don't end up fully understanding all the risks before they give it a try. And as a result, um, some of them are now, you know, because of where we are in this current cycle, getting hurt by risks they took that didn't even understand were higher than they thought, right? Um, and so I just, um, because of this timing, I had that reaction in terms of what you just said, because it's now bearing fruit that, you know, there isn't zero risk, prices don't go up forever, rents don't go up forever, the economy isn't perfect forever. And a lot of the marketing that gets pitched to you as a past investor is always very optimistic and not very pessimistic. So you have to be very careful as a past investor in all these realms. I want you to maybe expand a little bit on how the how from the perspective of passive investing and the passive investor, how has the changes we've been seeing cha uh, impacted the passive investor? You're referring to the changes in the last year in the economy, interest rates, et cetera? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a very interesting and challenging time right now with a lot of opportunity at the same time. So, um, so as a past investor, if you take a look at everything I received over the past three years, 2020, 21, 22, and I received stuff across all asset classes, right? Not just apartments, but I would say over 90% of every opportunity I've ever received in those years was a apartment value add floating rate bridge loan structure. Okay. And I didn't do any one of them and that because they were the wrong fit for me. Uh, but if you invested in something in the last three years as a past investor, almost certainly you invested in one or more of those because there was almost nothing else to invest in. And unfortunately, now with the interest rate increases that are affecting those floating rate loans, along with rent starting to come down in certain um, cities, along with the highly probable recession that's coming up that will probably bring rents down in a lot of cities, along with price adjustments because interest rates spiked, it's a very challenging time. And right now, I am seeing fellow past investors get hit with um, no cash flow, in many cases, capital calls, and in some cases, starting to get towards foreclosure, especially on the apartment side. I'm not, tr I'm not trying to pick on apartments, but I'm just giving everyone the reality of the landscape. Actually, I love apartment. One of my favorite asset classes for the long term. But right now, it's extremely challenging. So I'm watching um, a lot of things unfold that I think are very challenging for people who dipped their toe in in the last few years, but will breed a lot of opportunity for people um, who are not dipping their toe in or were on the sidelines like me in 2024 and 25. Um, and so, you know, if, if you have to equate it to just give people an idea, I feel like, you know, we're recording this in July of 2023. Uh, I feel like, okay, we're in July of 2008 from a cycle perspective. In the next two years, bad things are going to unfold. Investors will have opportunities. Some investors will get hurt. And unfortunately, this time around, the investors that are most likely to get hurt were office investors in uh, main core urban areas and multifamily or apartment investors who went into these uh, value add bridge loan scenarios. Those are the top two that I see getting hurt in the next couple of years. This uh, topic of economic uncertainty and the potential for a downturn has been a recurring theme with a lot of the guests I've had on recently. And I've heard you say that you're mostly on the sidelines right now. You said that earlier. Um, and it's because of where we are in the market. You also touched on that. Can you maybe provide some more context as to where you think we are in that market cycle? I know a lot of times I've heard people say it's hard to know where you are when you're in it. And like hindsight is twenty twenty. But I would love to know what's your perspective on, on where we are and uh, do you always sit this stage out? And also, how does your investment strategy change depending on where we are in the market cycle? Great questions. So first thing I'll say is the easiest way for me to describe where I think we are is literally what I said before, which is just picture we're in J July of 2008. You're coming to me and saying, check out this opportunity. Does it make sense? 
But what made sense in July 2008? Very little except for really unique situations. And that's kind of my stance at the moment. That's what I think we are from a cycle. I'm not saying that the cycle is going to play out the same. I'm not saying we're going to have 6 million house foreclosure. I'm just thinking from a cycle timing perspective where I think we are, right? So that gives you some idea. I think that um, really stuff's going to be at its worst probably in 2024 and possibly early 2025. Um, I think we're going to start to see that unfold towards the end of this year. Um, and um, so from a cycle timing perspective, that's where I kind of think we are. Now, I want to be clear. I'm always making investments. Um, there's always unique opportunities out there and stopping for years is not good for, you know, you're going to get behind it for inflation. So there's always unique opportunities out there, but now is the time to be ultra picky. Now you asked me about how I change my investing depending where we are in the cycle. So if you look at someone like me who's very low risk, ironically, I do things in the reverse order of what you're being pitched typically as an investor. So um, when somebody came back to me in 2020, 21, 22, and said, what do you think this bridge loan deal, this value at bridge loan, deal, I, I, I would tell people this, I say, I will do value added at the beginning of a cycle and not at the end of a cycle. And we are at the end of a cycle. And that is the most risky time to do value add. The reason why you're seeing a value, mostly value add deals at the end of a cycle is because it's the only thing that a sponsor can make pencil to have high enough projected returns to in interest investors. But it's also the worst time to actually for an investor to move forward into that deal. The best time to do that deal is the beginning of a cycle when you have your wind, the wind to your back, you know, rents have come down and now they're starting to go up slowly. And you have the, what I call the most amount of runway to be able to take that plane off. And if you have to course correct while you're going down the runway, you've got plenty of room. But you have rents going up over time. You have the economy growing over time. And a very high probability you're going to take off really well. When you have a very short runway at the end of a cycle, it's the exact opposite, right? You have a lot of forces against you. The headwinds are there. And it's almost like just a matter of time before the runway stops. And so um, I do... The most value add that I do, relatively speaking, at the beginning of a cycle, the least amount of it at the end of a cycle, and therefore I'm most risk averse at the end of a cycle and least risk averse, relatively speaking, at the beginning of a cycle. That's how I play the cycles, which is literally the opposite of what a lot of you see from sponsors because they're just catering to what makes sense from an investor return perspective, but not what makes sense from a risk and uh, investor perspective. Yeah, that's such a great point. Right now, there's a lot of obviously a lot of negatives with where we are, and there's also talk of of this wave of opportunity that's coming. And I, I know a lot of investors are finding themselves in similar position where you are, where they're sitting on the sidelines, mm -hmm. and there's this tension between sitting it out and waiting too long to get back in the market, and also jumping in too early and catching a falling knife. So you did yes. mention that you're always looking at opportunities, but how do you balance that tension? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And so I always try to keep everything as objective as possible so that there's no emotion and there's no guesswork. I'm taking probabilities from the past and applying them to the future and using that as my guidance. They could turn out to be completely wrong, but that's how I do it, right? And so if you look at the highest probability scenarios we have right now, there's a few very important things to keep in mind. Highest probability scenario is that we're going to have a recession begin either in the second half of 2023 or the first half of 2024. Another very high probability scenario, if that occurs, is that um, eventually the Fed will cut rates at some point and not necessarily quickly, but they do over time when there's a recession and they only do it when things are really bad. So you don't want them cutting rates because that's they're only doing it because they're responding to a very bad scenario. But one of the most important things to keep in mind is that if you look historically, and a lot of people don't know this, the stock market does not actually crash into a recession until the Fed starts to reduce rates. Okay, That is key because when do you have your most amount of panic your worst case and your worst timing and your most fear of and lack of liquidity is when the stock market is crashing. 
So until I see that happen, right, as a guideline, I have to be ultra picky on what I'm seeing and I'm waiting on the worst time to come, right? Just objectively. And so until then, I'm going to be ultra careful. Once that starts to occur, I think well, then we'll see um, less deals getting done, but they'll be at much more interesting pricing. And that's what, how you know that the fleshing out is really occurring at that time. And we're not there yet, right? Uh, I can give you all kinds of more objective numbers about why it doesn't make sense that unemployment would even be high yet. Uh, statistically, objectively, forget what the media says. We shouldn't even have employment going up yet. If you look at how things work with raising rates and how long the lag effect takes, um, you can look objectively in the fact that the credit started to um, get tighter in March based on the banks tightening, but we're not at peak credit tightening yet because that's not the way it works. So things should still be better than they're going to be. There's so many indicators as to why we're not there yet, but we're going to get there. So if you learn a lot of these well enough, you can actually paint a high level picture, objective picture of where we're probably going to get to and keep yourself in check, right? Which is not easy to do, um, but that's that's how I do it. All of this, this topic is relating to risk mitigation and you're obviously very risk averse. Um, and earlier you touched on this idea and this, this notion of 1% risk or, uh, where every single deal is going to involve some level of risk, no matter how much you try to control for those factors. So I wanted to know, have you ever fallen in, in, in a victim to one of those 1% risk? So in 2008, in January, I was convinced we we're going to have a recession. And um, I said, okay, what do I invest in at this point? Came across a very unusual loan assumption, good interest rate student housing apartment with a very experienced sponsor who owned 17 other properties at the time. And I said, you know what, um, big university, there's going to be demand. In fact, people are going to go back to school more when they're unemployed. So there's going to be even more demand as counter cyclical at the big schools. So we buy the property in January, 2008, everything goes really well, hundred percent occupied every year because of that thesis, perfect investment for the recession at the time. And, um, Jan beginning of 2012 comes up and, um, the loan that we have is actually due that year because we assumed a loan that had multi, you know, several years left. So um, the the city in that area, uh, it was in Michigan, sends a letter to the residents and the owner saying, look, we have to close the bridge. Have, so we're the first property across the street from a state university campus, fantastic location. And they're saying, we got to close the bridge for the summer to do repairs on it because we have to do it when it's warm. But don't worry, you know, it's going to be open for you to get back to school. No need to worry. You can stay where you are. And students start to get really worried. Like, are they really going to get this bridge done in time? I'm able to walk the campus in January in, you know, in the fall. And if not, what do I do? So we go from hundred percent occupied literally for, to like 65% occupied for the renewal season. Now fall comes around and we're at about a break-even scenario, but we're under the debt coverage ratio for the loan. And, um, the lender refused to extend the loan for a year because the easy solution is extend the loan for a year. And next year we're going to be hundred percent occupied again. And by the way, they did finish the bridge in time. Meanwhile, and um, lender would not extend the loan and decided to foreclose on the property, I think, because they saw it was a really good opportunity to take this property back at a great deal. So um, so I call that a 1% risk because who could have ever forecast that the bridge was going to be fixed in the year the loan was due and that the lender would not extend the loan, which is very unusual because they don't normally want to take real estate back. And the worst part of the whole story was that the loan was partial recourse to the sponsor, right, which is also a little bit unusual. And so... Uh, only foreclosure I think I've ever been in, honestly. And um, so that was a 1% risk that you can't really avoid. It can happen. But the other crazy 1% story about the story was that the sponsor felt really bad, owned most of their other properties without investors. 
and transferred without anybody asking, without any legal obligation, all of the equity investors to another property they owned across from another state university, first property in Texas that I'm still in today. And um, we had about a year transition, legal documents, uh, no cash flow for a year while they were transitioning us, but I lost one year's cash flow. I'm still cash flowing and doing really well with that opportunity today that I'm in. Um, so ironically, the only foreclosure I've ever been in wasn't even a loss for myself. It was just a one year transition. So, which is very unusual. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned about who you're making a bet on, you know, are they trying to help investors? Um, just so many lessons, but yes, there's 1% risks. You can never avoid them. There could be a fraud risk, a mismanagement risk, a Ponzi scheme risk. I tell people you can be investing with the above board sponsor who has never done anything fraudulent before, but they just decide to become fraudulent tomorrow morning when they wake up. And what could you have done about it? Nothing except for be diversified, right? So you cannot get your risk down to zero as a passive investor. Things can happen. Moving forward from that experience, I'm sure that, like you said, there was a lot of lessons and you have this notion of that you are making a bet on someone because at the end of the day, you never really know 100%. What, how has that changed your approach to vetting your sponsors before you invest with them? To be honest with you, it hasn't changed my approach in general. Although one thing I will tell you that I landed on as a rule for myself a long time ago, there's a couple of very black and white rules. Number one is I always do background checks on the managing members of the sponsor. That's a hardcore rule with no exception because it saved me sometimes. Um, number two is that I will always uh, meet with somebody in person before investing with them. Now, that was a rule I had pre-Zoom. I still think it's best to meet with someone in person with you know once before you invest with them. And the reason why is I'm a big believer in like a gut feeling. And you can have an opinion about whether you want to make a bet on somebody, but until you meet with them in person, I don't think you've been able to, it's almost like you're missing a piece of the puzzle before it's complete. And I think that taking the risk of not completing the puzzle with that piece before you move forward is probably a risk that doesn't make sense, or at least is very difficult you know, in terms of increasing risk. So um, that's another hard rule that I like to stick by. Um, and um, yeah, so I mean, those are the two core ones coming to mind. But but that story hasn't changed much for me because I would still make that bet again. That's the thing, right? I would literally, without hesitation, invest in that property again. Now you can say, are you? In, it doesn't make sense to invest in a in a loan that was due in four and a half years instead of having the typical, you know, seven or ten year runway. That may be the only thing I would consider more seriously, right? But even then, it was such a good deal and it was such an unusual deal that that may get me to overcome the hurdle of the additional risk of the four and a half month runway because the risk of the one percent risk is the one percent risk you can never really avoid. So, absolutely, and I think one of the best ways to mitigate risk aside from vetting the sponsor. There's two points I want to touch on, but first, the amount of money you invest in the deal. In the past, you've yes. said that you don't you know, put too much in one particular deal or one market. Is there like a rule of thumb that you use to determine how much to invest in any one market or deal? Yeah, yeah. And so the, you know, those two points I made before are clearly not my only criteria. But um, look, I like to be diversified across um, a lot of things. And so um, I tell people that I wouldn't want to have more than you know, 10% of my capital in with any one sponsor, uh, preferably less than five. Um, and, um, but what I find is that, you know, my situation is, I don't think it's a very good example for people because you can't really get to the level of diversification I have unless you're doing this full time. Otherwise it'd be very, very challenging to really do effectively when you're really trying to analyze a lot of things effectively. And I think it's a bit unrealistic for most people. And I'm not even sure that the amount of things I'm in really is, a net negative or net positive. It's a lot of things. So 
Um, most of the people I talk to try as a goal, try to get into between 10 and 20 different opportunities across multiple operators, across multiple asset classes and geographies. Some of them will try to get to 30 or 40. It's very rare that I speak to somebody that gets up to 30 or 40. So I would say the most realistic goal that I still think is a really great goal to achieve is probably 20 opportunities to be in. And within there, I would try to limit my exposure to any one sponsor to, you know, 10 to 20 percent um, and um, just be very careful. I eat, look, if, even if you are exposed to 20 percent to one sponsor, if that person is a Ponzi scheme and they're fraudulent, that's a big hit to take. Right. So um, if you get below 10 and, and up to 5 percent, that to me is optimal. But everyone's got their own opinion. It's a very subjective topic, you know. Yeah. Aside from the sponsor and because of, of course that's a factor you can somewhat control and that along with the allocation of capital you were you were touching on market selection is also another factor that i know you put a lot of consideration into and there's a lot that goes into determining like where to invest your money and and, and you also do your own due diligence there how do you determine what markets you like to invest in and i know stability of the market and cash flow aspects are also big factors for you when you're even looking within a market so can you touch on those yeah. And so I like to tell people that I don't, I don't walk around with a list of like my top five or 10 markets based on research, just target those. I do the opposite effect. I'm open to anything that makes sense, depending on the asset class, especially when you look at mobile home parks and other things that are more, more in tertiary and secondary markets, um, potentially. But um, I, it's more of like, what do I try to avoid? So what do we take off the list? Right? So I avoid um, very volatile markets. So where I live in California, I typically don't invest in because the, the asset prices go up and down too much volatility for me. New York City, Miami, very hot markets, San Francisco, those are too volatile for me. So that's number one, because I'm looking just for more predictability. I look for less upside, but more predictability of cash flow. So those are the wrong markets for me. I tend to avoid tertiary markets almost exclusively. I've been in random mobile home parks that may have made sense in those scenarios, but I do not like to be in tertiary markets for the most part across anything else. Um, I prefer to be in bigger cities when I can, but that don't necessarily have the volatility aspect, right? So really good examples of those in the past anyway have been Dallas, Houston, um, some other major cities that aren't as volatile, for example, as Phoenix and Vegas, which I stay away from, even though I love those cities. I've been to both of them. Um, they're great cities to live in or, or sorry, potentially to live in or to go to and visit, but they're not the right fit for me. So and also I, I have a very specific box about, you know, the specific asset class um, uh, age and you know what type of class I'm trying to target as far as what type of tenant is going to be there, right? Is it going to be like the prime, you know, office trophy office building? No. Is it going to be the really dilapid office bid, dilapidated office building? No. It's going to be somewhere in between. So I also have those requirements. But from a geographical perspective, it's more like a process of elimination as opposed to a process of inclusion. Because what I've learned about the U.S. being from Canada originally is that there are just so many interesting and good markets over time that for makes sense across a lot of different assets. Let me give you a great example. The student housing stuff. Would I invest in anything but a student housing apartment opportunity in some of these markets? No. But if you're right near a major campus, you know, um, if, if you're in Ann Arbor at University of Michigan, I don't know if, if anyone here is familiar with that that's listening, but it's a very like, you know, that's a school town, right? And so it's great to potentially invest in an apartment there, potentially. I've never invested in that particular market. Could be. But would I invest in a mobile home park in that area? Probably not. 
because um, that's so centered around the students. I'm not sure that's a really predictable type of investment. So, you know, um, there's just so many possibilities in the U.S. You have to be open minded because there's a lot of opportunity out there. Easiest rate to reach me. I'm not on social media, anything like that. I don't have a website, but you're welcome to email me. Uh, jroll at rollinvestments.com. So J-R-O-L-L at roll, R-O-L-L investments with an S dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com is the easiest way to reach me. And you're, anyone's welcome to reach out.